Hey, welcome to the Seattle Psychiatrist Interview Series. This educational series is brought to you by Seattle Anxiety Specialists. Located in downtown Seattle, our psychiatrists and therapists specialize in treating anxiety, anxiety disorders, and other mental health issues that commonly lead to anxiety. For a full list of our services, as well as access to our multitude of online resources, check us out online at seattleanxiety.com. Thank you for joining us today for this installment of the Seattle Psychiatrist Interview Series. I'm Teresa Nair, a research intern at Seattle Anxiety Specialist. Today, I'd like to welcome with us Lauren Johnson, who has a Master of Public Health in Environmental Science and Policy and is a Climate Corps Fellow for the Environmental Defense Fund. During her time as a graduate student, Lauren founded the Environmental Justice Action Network at the George Washington University, which is a student-led organization working to address environmental justice issues in the metropolitan DC area. In her current fellowship with the Environmental Defense Fund, she focuses on advancing environmental justice through strategic planning, scientific research, data-driven project management, and community engagement. Before we get started, can you tell us a little more about yourself and what made you interested in environmental justice? Yeah, so hi, my name is Lauren Johnson. I'm from uh, Northern Virginia, the DC area. And I just graduated my master of public health and environmental science and policy from George Washington University's public health school. And um, ever since before public health school, even I fell in love or became passionate about environmental justice issues when I was teaching high school chemistry uh, in Miami, Florida for Teach for America. And there I was confronted with various systems of oppression, such as lack of literacy, deteriorated infrastructure, school to prison pipeline, and was very um, disheartened by seeing how our nation's most vulnerable groups of people are treated and left with little resources and so much instability to reach their full potential. And that's what motivated me to focus on these issues at a systemic level. And I saw that public health was an avenue of doing so and brought my passion of environmental justice into public health school, which led to the, the founding of the Environmental Justice Action Network at GW. And that was founded by me and about seven other people that were also passionate about environmental justice, but did not see an avenue of expressing it at the school. And even though there's been a lot of mentioning of it, there really was an organized effort for students to get involved and give back to their surrounding community, because that's also a central tenet of environmental justice, of having real impacts in communities and especially communities that are most vulnerable. So we found ourselves in Southeast DC doing um, park cleanups, urban gardens. We also held a lot of webinars, bringing uh, more disadvantaged speakers such as indigenous environmental activists or food justice activists so that we can start elevating these uh, intersectional issues to the forefront and also challenge traditional environmentalism that does not have these issues in the forefront, but is so needed to us actually reaching our climate goals. So that perspective informs my current work in the Environmental Defense Fund, which I am going to be a permanent member in a couple of weeks. 
That's wonderful. Congratulations. Um, and so going back a little bit to when you started the Environmental Justice Action Network, what types of environmental justice issues did you see in DC and how did you decide what was important to prioritize? Yeah, so we were starting uh, EJAN, that's the shorthand for it, during COVID-19. So we were quite limited in terms of direct engagement with people just for social distancing guidelines and guidelines that the school laid out for that as well that we had to abide by. But we saw there was a pressing need with pollution in Southeast DC, Board 7 and 8, and how a lot of people do not have proper trash pickup. So we would drive into these areas and just see trash littered everywhere. And you kind of have to keep it in perspective. Well, if you don't have proper trash pickup, where are you going to put the trash? So that's when you can't blame the individual, but the system that allows these conditions to persist and how they are inequally perpetuated. Because we saw some parks that are managed by the National Park Service that was full of trash. Wow. You go to Rock Creek Park, you don't see mm -hmm. that. What's the difference between the two areas? I think you can right. answer that in terms of income and race. So we saw those issues most aptly and saw that that was a way to socially distance and engage in these types of work. Um, and we also partnered with an uh, urban garden called the Franciscan Monster Garden Guild that uh, produces a lot of food to food insecure individuals um, by donating a lot to, to food kitchens and, and pantries. So we saw those were the main ways we can engage in EJ um, within COVID-19. But other than that, our activities were virtual in terms of meeting, holding webinars, and just trying to educate ourselves as future EJ practitioners. Okay. And just before we continue, I want to make sure if any listeners are not familiar with the term environmental justice, could you explain a little bit more about what exactly it is and what it means and how it impacts different communities? Yeah, so environmental justice uh, came out of the, the late 1970s, where I believe it was PCB, there is this new industry being proposed to be put in a predominantly Black community, Warren County, North Carolina. And the residents organized extremely well and were able to stop those efforts by literally putting themselves on the line. Like you look at pictures of that protest and you saw kids laying on the ground trying to wow. stop trucks going into their neighborhood that's how pressing the wow. issue communities because literally their lives are on the line so they have to put their lines on the lives on the line to stop it wow. and that's what spurred the movement and um since then in the 80s there was a report called toxic waste and race that found that the strongest predictor of whether a pollution source is in a community is race, regardless of <laughs> it is race. So again, I'm talking about system, that is evidence of systemic racism and how these trends perpetuate all over the country. And then from then, environmental justice became this, this movement that, that kept becoming academic, you know, what is environmental racism? Well, just dependent on the environment, you are subject to lack of clean water, polluted air, mold, pest infestations, things that even if you control from income affects 
are predominantly black and brown populations. And, and then that notion just kept perpetuating until uh, in 2021, Biden released an executive order that was pretty much co codifying environmental justice at the forefront of their priorities. Because prior to that, in the 1990s, there was a executive order signed by Clinton that also recognized environmental justice and how federal agencies need to confront it. But this executive order put it to the forefront with an initiative called Justice 40 that says that any uh, federal, I think, energy and infrastructure investments, 40% has to go to disadvantaged communities. So that's really wow. huge, right? Yeah. Because when you want change, you need to have the capital to follow with it. So basically, environmental justice captures a lot of things. It captures how people are versely affected by the environment, disproportionately predicted by race most strongly, very place-based in terms of the surrounding um, industries and factors that lead to pollution, cumulatively burden certain communities, and achieving environmental justice means upholding the principle that everyone is has equal protection to environmental, mm -hmm. housing, criminal, um, other such laws that affects every aspect of your life. That's the environmental part, expanding the definition mm -hmm. of environment for everything that externally affects you. And EJ is about rectifying that. When we were talking a few minutes before the interview started, you mentioned um, how system, systematic engineering can help to solve some of these problems. Would you mind discussing that a little bit? and how systematic engineering um, could be applied in these situations? Yeah, yeah, so this is a new uh, discipline that I uh, just kind of happened when I started working in the Environmental Defense Fund. I saw that someone was doing a similar study that I was um, from a systems engineering perspective. And essentially, there are some tools available from more technical disciplines to assess the inputs and outputs of a system and everything that takes place in the system that mediates or negotiates the resulting outputs. That can be applied to a social con context where, for example, I'm doing a study on net zero and equity and justice. And I'm trying to create recommendations for my organization to uphold their equity and justice goals. So the equity and justice goals are the output. Now, what can the input be? Well, to achieve that, you need to really have resources, meaning time and people and capital to be put in the types of projects that prioritize people-centered solutions that do not perpetuate existing injustices. But if you don't view that from a system, systems lens, then you could easily result to just blaming individuals. Like we have some bad actors here. If we get rid of those, we'll be good. Well, <laughs> we know that doesn't yeah. work when right. let's say a, a similar issue is police brutality. You know, firing a few bad cops is not going to change the system of people being systemically murdered, predicted by race. So in turn, you need to think about things in that lens and how the mental models, the different structures, 
everything interacts with each other to produce a certain output. And to reach the output that you want, you need to change everything within the system and outside of the system and how it's structured to reach it. That's a great point, because I think a lot of times people do just want to blame one person or, you know, a handful of people. But it's such so much of a bigger problem than that, that it really needs a much bigger solution. Um, if I could do one more spinoff, just because we were talking about such interesting things before I started recording. Um, could you talk a little bit also about the relationship between the environmental movement and environmental justice and how those two can sometimes conflict a little bit? Oh, man, I was just having a conversation about this. So it helps to, you know, talk about the history. Environmental movement kind of was spurred by, I believe his name was John Muir, um, who was pushing the National Parks movement. And I may be getting this wrong. I also know Teddy Roosevelt was involved in the National Park system, but hey, we're concerned about the environment. It's pretty nature, wildlife. Let's preserve it. Well, who was on this land before? Indigenous peoples. They lived for thousands of years existing sustainably on the land. So prior to colonization, people are like, oh, wow, this nature, it's so well kept. That's because people are keeping it. And we're finding now that there's some practices that are ingrained in indigenous knowledge that we need to start doing, such as um, uh, controlling fires and forests or uh, cutting some of them down so it's not densely uh, populated. Indigenous peoples figured out thousands of years ago and now we're coming around and realizing we need to do stuff like that because um, we have so many wildfires now. Right. So there's always been this tension of, you know, people, typically white and liberal, like, we need to protect the environment. We need to, like, uh, protect our wildlife. That's true. But we also need to protect the people that is in that environment. And that's the intersection that is left out. And, and many others, you know, gender... Uh, raise income, all those things mm-hmm. factor into how much you can take care of the environment and how much the environment impacts you. And and coming from an environmental justice side to that, there's a lot of tensions because, you know, like we were talking about systems. EJ really pushes for you to confront those issues and that makes you very uncomfortable with it. So when you, a lot of people, when they become uncomfortable, they'll shut down and say, well, that's not my focus like that has nothing to do with the environment the environment is everything around you that affects you so yeah you should have a stake in all this and if you're doing environmental work you also need to talk about health care you also need to talk about housing the criminal justice system because these are things that impacts everyone's environment and we all need to be an equal stakeholder in solving it because otherwise we can't have the systemic change that is needed to solve the climate crisis. Yeah, I I think that's an important point. You can't really separate all of it, right? It's kind of the one health approach that everything is connected together and it all relates to each other. Um, When you've been working with communities and and residents on some of these environmental justice issues, what types of mental health impacts have you seen on the communities who are experiencing some of these um, disparities or discrimination? Yeah, I would say I was confronted with that quite aptly when I was teaching. You know, I said to teach for America in Miami, Florida, a very hot and humid place that 
Uh, I read one study that says that the number one uh, most economic risk to climate impacts. Um, so for the students I taught, one time uh, I got a grant to do a hurricane disaster preparedness workshop for those students. And somehow during that workshop, we started talking about air pollution. And I ended up asking those students, how many of you have asthma? And over half the class raised their hand. Wow. That's not significant random. That's yeah. the system at play where you're in these conditions, like I said, hot and humid. You have a lot of mold, you have a lot of pests, you have um on top of that, like industries near you that are affecting your health through air pollution and water pollution. And then now you're compounding that with climate change and sea level rise, extreme weather. All those things are going to heighten those existing conditions there. And so that's kind of what climate justice is all about. And the ways that we are addressing our climate related causes you need to make sure that the people that are most adversely affected are uplifted in that transition. Because, well, one, usually the ones that are least responsible for causing it, like just looking upon income, the more income you have, the more greenhouse gas footprint you have. And I mean, I can even get into a large conversation about how corporations are part of that too, but you can feel free if you like. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, these, these factors, they compound and it causes a lot of anxiety. I even had to make a, a suicide attempt call to report. Wow. Um, and, 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 and I mean, these are environmental things, but this also controls people's behavior. Like if you're in this bad environment and, and you're also not concerned about education, even though it's a school, that's another thing. You're going to yeah. have all these things mentally impact the students that you have. And oftentimes I kind of just had to put on my therapist hat and just be there talking to students, had some people cry on my shoulder, um, just know that I care about them. And if anything, that's sometimes, that's one of the few times we've heard that, which is also really sad. Um, wow. So yeah, mental health is very tied into it. But one thing you need to make sure is that, you know, there's this uh, uh, climate anxiety has become something very real. It's, it's, it's a very real thing, but that is because this might be the first time you have this existential threat to your livelihood. Right. To keep that in perspective that that has already been a thing for many groups of people in this country, whether it be slavery, Jim Crow, migrant workers, elderly, just people with disabilities, they've already had these existential threats affecting their livelihood. So you kind of have to recognize your identity and your privilege when you're addressing these issues because you might be like, oh my gosh, you need to do something about it at all costs. Like everyone just needs to get in line. Well, that's not good enough for a lot of people that's already suffering from the current conditions so you just kind of have to keep things in perspective even when it affects you mentally that's a good point that you know a lot of groups have always you know have been dealing with these threats for a long time and, and for some people this is the first time they're experiencing something like this but other groups have been dealing with this on an ongoing basis 
Um, so when people start to feel overwhelmed and feel like these are just huge issues that, um, you know, where do you even start addressing it? What advice would you give for people who are just feeling overwhelmed when they think about these topics? Because we're talking about these major systematic problems, right? That I think the average person feels like there's not really anything they can do much about. So what advice do you give? Like you seem to be able to stay inspired and feel like you can make a difference. And I think that's amazing. Um, it's one of the reasons I wanted to interview you. This is incredible how you stay inspired in the face of all this. But I think a lot of people look at some of these topics and they just feel frustrated. So what advice would you give for people who are, you know, just look at this and they just think I, I, I can't change any of this. <laughs> Well, first I'll say check your privilege because there's a lot of people overwhelmed for hundreds of years in this country. Right. But also I'll take a quote from um, one of my environmental professors at public health school. You kind of need to find like the bubble of people and work that you can influence and just focus on that, you know? Right. So for me, I know that I grew up in a pretty privileged upbringing. And even though I'm a black woman, I still had a lot of opportunities and um, came from a two-parent household that also was very stable. So that means I've been able to gain a really robust education. Um, part of my skill set is talking to white people. So I'll just call that out too. <laughs> and then also <laughs> just thinking about the big picture. So that's why... I found that I can make a lot of impact in a big environmental organization because, you know, all those skills I had growing up, but I can also keep things in perspective and saying, well, I know that I'm quite privileged, but there's a lot of other people that look like me that aren't. And how about I can do what I can to level the playing field per se and actually make an impact in doing that at an organization that has inter international influence. Very challenging and difficult work, but I found myself right. on a team that is designed to do just that. And they're mm -hmm. extremely motivated. And, and kind of what keeps me going is, you know, thinking about the students I had in Miami. They are suffering in many different ways. It seems like I might have some skills that can uh, do something about that. And that might be me getting ahead of myself and saying, I'm going to fix everything. No, no, no. But what I can do is expand the platform I have and try to get as many people on the same page as possible so that authentic and meaningful change does happen as we're addressing the climate crisis. That's great. And I think you hit on one of the key points that you work with other people who are also inspired, you know, finding maybe a group or an organization to work with where people are working towards a positive difference, right? I, I think that that can help. Um, and then you have also the inspiration of who you want to help thinking about your former students. Um, let's talk a little bit about your work in Texas. I know last year you worked with the North Central Texas Council of Governments to develop a greenhouse gas emiss emission reduction plan that will mitigate risks for underserved communities. Could you tell us about your work there and how underserved communities in that area are being impacted by climate change? Yeah, for sure. For <laughs> sure. So uh, that project you just mentioned uh, took place last summer. 
And uh, just as a context, Texas is actually divided into all these regional council of governments, and they kind of assist the local governments in making decisions and providing funding. Well, a collection of those local governments approached the North Central Texas Council of Governments, which is like the Dallas-Fort Worth area, saying, hey, we know climate change is a thing. Why don't you give us this repository of strategies and tools to address it in our own communities? So that kind of was the basis for the project, which is looking at all these different plans that uh, were cultivated in Texas or the rest of the country, even some international organizations of these strategies. Well, I'll say a lot of them are untested, though, because, you know, a lot of things that we're proposing to solve climate change is still in development phase. But <laughs> if a government wants to do something in particular, well, then they can, well, I hope it it's being turned into an online repository. I just did the strategies. They can look at some strategies that can um, reduce emissions. But like I was saying, you can't leave out the, the other side of the picture that there are some people that are burdened by emissions, but more specifically air pollutants. And those are the things that are most concerned. So um, I try to position the, the recommendations and the strategies around those different pollutions and know that you can both reduce emissions from these industries, but also clean them up so that surrounding communities are not disproportionately affected. And that kind of was the level of engagement I could have um, with vulnerable communities with that project. But I also was able to use some GIS mapping to look at the trends of different pollution sources. So whether that be uh, natural gas or oil power plants or super fun sites and look at some data that approximated the the distribution of health impacts whether that be asthma cancer diabetes and then see how the location of those pollution sources interacted with those health disparities it was almost like very upsetting how much those health disparities align with where those pollution sources were. Wow. And I use something called the CDC social vulnerability index that takes into account like a lot of social factors like age and, and, and race and, and um, language proficiency to measure the vulnerability of certain communities. And I found, you know, the most vulnerable were right near these pollution sources. And that could just be a highway right next to you. Right. But some of the most uh, burdened communities, there is one that in Fort Worth had the lowest life expectancy, I believe in the whole state of Texas. And they were actually right across from a hospital. But because it's wow. a really major roadway, was separating them in the hospital, they were completely cut out from any healthcare access and, and likely the effects of the roadway near them and a number of other pollution issues that causes them to have like ridiculous rates of different diseases and then cause such a lower life expectancy. So when I talk about environmental justice, like this really is a life and death matter and should thus be treated with that urgency. Because as we're trying to change our society to affect climate change, you need to make sure that there's communities already suffering 
And this is an opportunity to do something about it. Yeah, sometimes people don't realize what a difference even just living right next to an interstate makes on your overall health, just breathing in that pollution every day. And, and of course, it's usually, you know, wealthier people tend to live further from the interstate and are impacted as much, right? You know, it's something like that can have such an impact on your health. We've been talking about these environmental justice issues that are in Texas and D.C. And we talked about Miami a little bit. Um, many of our listeners are in the Pacific Northwest, um, and they may not know what environmental issues are in their city or um, even how to find out about that topic. How could the average person who may not be very familiar with the environmental justice problems in their area find out more about um, some of the problems in their local communities and the disparities that exist? Yeah, yeah. So it's good that I've learned a lot of cities, our um, local governments are really thinking about these issues, especially with the Biden administration setting high priorities for uh, priorities for environmental justice and like Justice 40 providing funding to vulnerable communities. So I would say the first resource you can go to locally is check your local government website, see if they have something listing what they're doing about, you know, the environmental and social issues are affecting the area. Um, I think that's the best way to get more local base. But um, if you could quickly search what uh, local organizations are also confronting those issues, like type in environmental justice in your community, you can see if there's any other organizations there that might have some local knowledge. Um, but there is also a lot of just national organizations and and movements that are, are trying to put these issues into light. And that could just be some of the, the renowned environmental justice organizations like WEAC for Environmental Justice, the Deep South Center um, for Deep South Center for just, oh man, I messed this up. But this is okay. an organization <laughs> uh, led by Dr. Beverly Wright um in the in the cancer alley area it does a lot of work there um so and and even the major environmental organizations too like i work at environmental defense fund we're also thinking about these things um there should be a decent amount of resources there to think about it and um and also nationally like the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, DOE, Department of Energy, they're also putting out resources to think about these issues, but also uh, mapping and screening tools to actually, you can go in, type in your address, and you can see uh, the different uh, pollution sources or demographic issues that um, are coming into play in your area. So for example, the EPA, they have something called EJ screen that you can do this. Mm -hmm. Um, the CDC has environmental public health tracking program that you can do this. And if you live in California, um, the California EPA is really on top of these issues and you can look to see how they're affecting you, uh, through a tool called Calenviro screen. Um, so there's a lot of, resources and things sprinkled throughout here, but kind of what we need is a more robust movement of joining forces and understanding we're on the same side of trying to figure things out and working together to do so. Yeah, I think that's the important point because a lot of times people might want to help if they know about it, but they may not even know that some of these problems exist in their neighborhoods. 
um, or where the tools are to find out about it. And I will link to some of the tools that you mentioned um, below this interview as well, so that people at least listening to this interview can find them. Um, if a person is experiencing anxiety due to living in an urban area and, you know, maybe they're worried about things like the pollution from the interstate if they live nearby or, you know, heat islands, or they've noticed that they have higher rates of asthma in their neighborhood, you know, some of these topics that we've discussed, what type of advice would you give to them? Yeah, yeah, I, I would say just really try to figure out, like, what those different things are like you said the urban heat island the could be like a lot of allergens that you're affected by the interstates just really understand how all these issues are and then find people trying to do something about it because there's a lot of really great local nonprofits that provide free assistance to let's say you're an urban heat island don't have um good ac well there's there's a lot of nonprofits that have programs funded for you to get that for free. Um, right. and, and then that can intersect with healthcare as well. There's a lot of great organizations um, that may be local to you that can do that as well. Um, but really the issue isn't individually how we respond to this. The issue is our representatives, the people we elect pushing policies mm -hmm. that can actually do something about this. Like, for example, why is it mandated affordable housing to have AC? Isn't that a necessity nowadays, especially with heat waves of climate change? Right. Uh, petition our representatives and senators to do something about it. And if you not just like send an email, but if you are able to get on the call online with someone, then I've been told by a number of local legislators, like they will listen to that. And trying to do something about it because maybe they have a ballot initiative coming up and are debating it. If you could be someone in the public forum or speaking set up setting to talk to these people directly. And I would advise like start at the local level too, because those are the people that really are making decisions that impact you locally. Um, you can bring your perspectives up and they may pivot entirely. You never know. So th there are ways to stay empowered throughout this. Um, and really just just realize knowledge is power and you do have something to do about it. Have you seen that happen? Have you seen um, someone completely drastically change their mind after, you know, being contacted on one of these issues? Uh, not, you know, not directly, but I have heard offline, like these are ways to um, really make an impression because, for example, Part of the reason why I fell into EJ is that I started working with a nonprofit called Callus Miami in Miami, Florida, and they did a lot of uh, tr free training and resources to um, empower uh, local residents to talk to their uh, representatives or a city board me meeting and how to do that. A lot of it is just telling your personal stories and how things have personally affected you. Um, and then saying a solution to like they'll they'll be empathetic but if you don't put anything on the table what to do about it, they probably won't get there either so <laughs> you could go there and um and like I said there was a local nonprofit that was training us to do that and I saw people throughout that program really find their voice and courage to, to talk about these issues how they affect them and what is something we can do about it that's that's an important point because 
it's true. A lot of times people who make these decisions are in the community and they might make decisions that wouldn't even work for the community. But if community members who are affected themselves are the ones suggesting solutions, then, you know, they know that that's the solution that would work best from their perspective. And then they can at least consider it, whereas they may not even think about it if somebody doesn't contact them. Right. Exactly. It's very powerful. The storytelling really is. So I, I hope people don't lose sight of that because there's been such a push to quantifying things, big data, technical. Well, I'm finding with EJ, the social dimensions of all that is being left out. So that's kind of why mm-hmm. um, I'm training myself to be a social science practitioner, where my current study, I'm talking to a lot of people through, well, I'm actually doing my own interviews and having a focus group tonight. Um wow. To, to start talking candidly about these types of issues and what are some ways we can do them, well, for me as a big environmental organization, do something about it and not leave people behind. Um, so it, it, there are things, again, we were talking about like, what are things you can influence? Well, that's my sphere. I think I think about people and communities and try to bring them in the conversation. Well, mm-hmm. you can figure that out for you too whether that be from a more technical side or social side like we need everyone all hands on deck to meaningfully and authentically address these issues yeah you're right that's true well as a professional who's building your career around advocacy and addressing environmental justice issues do you have any parting words or final things you'd like to share with our listeners well I'll say the the fight is long, the fight is hard, but it's still worth doing it. And my favorite, it sounds cliche, my favorite MLK quote, but this one's good. And he's also said a lot of things that are good. They're just kind of whitewashed over time. But this one is, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So if you are fighting for something you truly believe in and truly believe in helping people and pushing us for as a society that it's more fair and equitable and just we're going to be going through to that position naturally as people whether we'll get there fast enough (laughs) with climate change happening is another question but things are already moving in that direction so if you feel like you're the only person caring about these things if anything, people will come along, come around to it. But the urgency is that we kind of are on a ticking clock now with with how worse issues can be if we don't reach our greenhouse gas emission targets. Um, so, you know, be urgent. Know that these issues matter in our life and death. But try to remember that this fight is worth having at the end of the day because you can truly improve lives to the better doing so. Right. That's a a great note to end on that it's worth fighting and it's worth going through and worth continuing to work towards these solutions. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today and participating in our interview series. I really appreciate you making time and your busy schedule to meet with us. For sure. Thank you for having me. I hope if anyone wants to follow up, I'm happy to put my email address there. I can send that to you. Great. We will put your contact information there. And um, so, yeah, if anyone feels like they would like to contact you, we'll we'll provide the information on how they can do so. Thank you.